The Paris Front On a soft winter evening in Manhattan, the 15th of December, 1937, it started to snow. Big flakes spun lazily in the sky, danced in the lights of the office buildings, and melted as they hit the pavement. At Saks Fifth Avenue, the window displays were lush and glittering. Tinsel, toy trains, sugary frost dusted on the glass, and a crowd had gathered at the main entrance, drawn by a group of carolers dressed for a Dickens Christmas in long mufflers, top hats, and bonnets. Here then, for as long as it lasted, was a romantic New York. The New York in a song on the radio. Christian Ferrar, a Spanish emigre who lived in Paris, took a moment to enjoy the spectacle, then hurried across the avenue as the traffic light turned red and began to work his way through the crowd. In a buckled briefcase carried under his arm, he had that morning's New York Times. The international news was as usual. Marches, riots, assassinations, street brawls, arson. Political warfare was tearing Europe apart. Real war was coming. This was merely the overture. In Spain, political warfare had flared into civil war, and, the Times reported, the army of the Republic had attacked General Franco's fascist forces at the Aragonese town of Teruel. And you only had to turn the page, there was more. Hitler's Nazi Germany had issued new restrictions on the Jews, while here was a photograph of Benito Mussolini, shown by his personal railcar as he gave the stiff-armed fascist salute, and there a photograph of Marshal Stalin reviewing a parade of tank columns. Christian Farrar would force himself to read it, would ask himself, is there anything to be done? Is it hopeless? So it seemed. Elsewhere in the newspaper, a democratic opposition to the dictators tried not to show fear, but it was in their every word, the nervous dithering of the losing side. As Franco and his generals attacked the elected republic, the others joined in, troops and warplanes provided by Germany and Italy, and with every victory they boasted and bragged and strutted. It's our turn, get out of our way, or else. He'd had a long, long day. A lawyer with the Couder Frere law firm in Paris. He'd spent hours at the Couder brothers' home office at 2 Rector Street. There'd been files to read, meetings to attend, and confidential discussions with the partners as they worked on matters that involved both the Paris and the New York offices, whose wealthy clientele had worldwide business interests and, sometimes, eccentric lives. Couder had, early in the century, famously untangled the Byzantine affairs of the son of Jacques Le Baudy. Le Baudy père had earned millions of dollars, becoming known as the Sugar King of France, but the son was another story. On receipt of his father's fortune, he'd gone thoroughly mad and led a private army to North Africa and there declared himself Emperor of the Sahara. In time, the French Foreign Legion had sent the emperor packing, and he'd wound up living on Long Island, where his wife shot and killed him. But the difficulties of the Labordi case were minor compared to what Couder had faced that day, the legal hell created by the Spanish Civil War now in its seventeenth month. Individuals and corporations cut off from their money, families in hiding because they were trapped on the wrong side, whatever side that was, burnt homes, burnt factories, burnt records— with no means of proving anything to insurance companies or banks or government bureaucracies. The Couder lawyers in Paris and New York did the best they could, but sometimes there was little to be done. We regret your misfortune, monsieur, but the oil tanker has apparently vanished.
Farrar had left the Courdier office at 5.30 and headed uptown to his hotel, the Gotham. Then, as a favor to a friend at the Spanish Embassy in Paris, he'd walked over to the Spanish Republic's arms-buying office at 515 Madison Avenue. Here he'd picked up two manila envelopes that he would take back to Paris. The days when you could trust the mail were long gone. He went next to Saks, meaning to buy Christmas presents, a hammered silver bracelet and a cashmere sweater, for a woman friend he was to meet at seven. This love affair had gone on for more than two years as, every three months or so, he flew to Lisbon, where one could take the Pan Am flying boat to New York. Actually, Farrar was not precisely a Spaniard. He'd been born in Barcelona and so thought of himself as Catalan from Catalonia, in ancient times a principality that included the French province of Roussillon. A Castilian from Madrid might well have recognized Farrar's origin. His skin at the pale edge of dark, a gentle hawkish slope to the nose, and the deep green eyes.